congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, which was a church that had lots of gifts of the Holy Spirit, lots of special gifts of the Holy Spirit, those special and temporary gifts that God poured out on the church during the period when we did not yet have the complete Bible, the complete canon of the New Testament finished. So lots of amazing stuff happening in Corinth. But here's the problem. It wasn't transforming the church to reflect the image of God. All these wonderful gifts, and yet the church at Corinth was a church full of sin, perversity, factions, conflict, arguments, selfishness. And so Paul goes through this letter to the Corinthians, this first letter, and he's admonishing the church chapter after chapter, telling them off, telling them to smarten up. And he talks in the chapters 12, 13, and 14, he talks a lot about spiritual gifts, especially those special temporary gifts of the Spirit in the first century. And the reason he talks a lot about them in this context is because they are getting it so wrong. They're getting it wrong. We heard last week how the apostle taught us that most excellent way. And here in our text of this morning, he describes that most excellent way, that way of love. And he doesn't write the words of our text, which are even the world knows. It's so famous, this section of scripture about what love is. He writes this not as a poem for Valentine's Day, but he writes it as a deadly serious warning. That you can have lots and lots of spiritual activity, you can have lots and lots of knowledge in the church of God, and yet you can lack the very essence, the very core of the Christian life. Now, in the first three verses of this chapter that we saw last week, he taught us that most excellent way is something without which the greatest signs and wonders are worth nothing. That most excellent way is something more fundamental than even the most perfect knowledge of all the revelation and all the doctrines, the true doctrines of God. And that most excellent way is love. Now, the Corinthians... We're saying, well, look at me. I am so spiritual. I've got these awesome spiritual gifts. I have so much spiritual knowledge. And I'm doing these amazing spiritual things. And Paul says, without love, great actions, great knowledge is worthless. It is nothing. And if that's all you got, if you got those things without love, you're better off shutting the doors of the church and going home and forgetting about everything. Because the Christian life and the Christian church without love is a huge zero. It is good for nothing. Now, God didn't just inspire Paul to emphasize the importance of love. But God also inspired the description of love that we have in verses 4 through to 7 here. 
Now, this is important for us as we look at the Holy Scripture this morning, and God tells us what love is. It's so important because we live in a culture, in a world in which love is a cheap word. It is a word which is twisted, and, and it is ripped apart, and it is emptied of all of its meaning. It has made something superficial and dead. We drive around town, and we drive by St. Albert's Center, and we see this big sign, love is love. And we see that mantra all over the place, also on social media, on the internet, love wins. And these are words which use the same spelling, but they speak of something very different than the love which God describes here in our text. We live in a world, a jaded world, in which I love you means I want you. In which love means that you represent something desirable to me, and when you are no longer desirable to me, then I don't love you anymore. It is a concept that has to do with emotions and feelings, and so you can fall into it and you can fall out of it. This is the message of the culture which the world, of the culture of the world, which it preaches to us in books and magazines and movies and social media, in advertising and in music. We have to understand this, brothers and sisters, young people, you, you need to listen up here that we are in a preaching war. Lord's Day after Lord's Day, you begin your week and God speaks to you from heaven with the message of the gospel, but there is a preaching which goes on 24-7 in the world to which you are subject and all of the media and all of the means of communication. And it is a message which is, it is a preached message which is totally contrary to what you hear Sunday after Sunday. And those two different types of preaching produce two mutually incompatible cultures, two cultures that are at war with each other. They can't exist together. It's one or the other. There's the culture of the children of God, and there is the culture of the children of disobedience. And in the world culture, especially in the, the movies and in the music where they they grab you by your emotions. Then love is a feeling. Love is an emotion which it's worth giving up everything for, even your own marriage, to get that emotional high, which may last for a shorter or longer period. But the, the description of the Word of God is totally opposite to this cheap, foul concept of love in the world. The, the world has the word love as, as something which reflects the character of man in his natural fallen state. It is a selfish pursuit of satisfaction of my own desires. It is the implacable, unrelenting commitment to seek my desires my good, no matter how much it costs others. That's the love of the world. But the love which is the fruit of the Spirit of God is the total opposite. 
It reflects the character of God. It is a sacrificial love, and it is an implacable, unrelenting commitment to seek the good of the other, no matter how much it costs me. What Paul is teaching in these verses that are before us today, what he's teaching in the first place is the very character of God. God is love. And there is no greater evidence for that than John chapter 3, verse 16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. God's love is revealed in the most glorious way in the Son, and that love that he shows to us in Christ is so great, it's so massive, it's so deep, it's so wide, it's so infinite, that we need, we literally need an eternity to praise him. It's never going to happen that after a few million or billion or trillion years in our current time that we're going to say, well, Lord, well, now we've said thank you enough. Now we've praised you enough. We've come to the end. It's never going to happen. There will always be more to praise him for. So great is his love towards us in Christ. And our text, in fact, reveals who Jesus is. You see those words on the page there, verses 4, 5, 6, and 7? This reveals the character of Jesus. You could take the word love and put the word Jesus wherever the word love is. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. Jesus is not arrogant or rude. This is a portrait of our God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing that he's teaching us, the character of God. In the second place, what Paul is teaching us in these verses is a description of the true manifestation of the work of the Spirit in the life of the child of God. What am I saying? Well, I'm saying this, that he's describing what you look like when God lives in your heart. What does the Bible say? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That is the love which marks the disciples of Jesus. That is the love which just fills them and, and overflows from them to the point that Jesus says, look, that's how the world is going to know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. And so it is good to study these verses to learn more about the character of our Savior and to learn more about what the true and real evidence is that the Spirit of Jesus is at work in our hearts and lives. And so we start at the beginning, verse 4, love is patient and kind. Love is patient. And we get to that first word of the description, patient, and we're already in very, very deep water. The words that Paul uses here are sometimes hard to translate because he uses words that are just packed with rich and deep 
meaning. We look at the word patient and we think, well, I go to the mall and my wife spends an inordinate amount of time looking at clothing and I'm sitting on the bench and I'm being patient because I love her. And then after a long time, she comes out, she hasn't bought anything, and we go away. And that's what we think of patience. That's not, the, that's not at all the background to the word that Paul is using. It's not even close. But the word which Scripture uses here is the same word that it uses to describe the infinite and the glorious character of God himself. This same word that we translate patient here is used in the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. And in Exodus 34, verse 6, the Lord passed before Moses and he proclaimed who he was. He revealed himself to Moses, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. That's what we read in Psalm 103 too, that he's slow to anger. That's the word patient in our text. It's translated differently there in Exodus 34. It's translated differently in Psalm 103. But it's the same word, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Slow to anger. When someone mistreats us, when someone wrongs us. I don't know about you, but I know that I'm quick to anger. We get irritated as sinners. Driving along, get cut off. It just feels so, like such an attack. Another vehicle attacks us or, or, or cuts us off and, and we want to defend ourselves and, and we want satisfaction. Somebody mistreated us. We want to get them back. We want them to know what they've done to us. But divine love is long-suffering. It is patient. It is slow to anger. And Jonah knew this. You remember Jonah went and preached to Nineveh, telling them to repent. He was hoping they wouldn't. And then when they did repent and God relented from the judgment he was going to bring upon them, Jonah complained. Because Nineveh was a, a cruel enemy of Israel. He was hoping they'll be destroyed. It would be a good thing for Israel if they were destroyed. And so Jonah's angry. He's so angry he wants to die. And there in Jonah chapter 4, he says, God, I knew it. I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger. There's the same word. And abounding in steadfast love. And Jonah doesn't think this is a good idea. He's angry about it. He's quick to be angry that God is slow to anger. Yet, brothers and sisters, there's no greater proof of this patient, merciful love of God than the history of this world and the history of God's own people, God's own church. Think about all the evil, all the wickedness, all the injustice that has happened and is happening since the fall into sin. You know, sometimes we, we doom scroll on, on social media and we see videos and we see news reports of so much violence, so much hurtfulness, so much cruelty, so much wickedness, so much perversity. 
And you know, it's so bad that even the ungodly sometimes say, you know what, send the asteroid now. Like seriously, just send the asteroid and be done with it. Because even the ungodly perceive to a certain extent how bad the world is. But, but what we know as human beings is just a small, limited perspective. We hardly know anything about all the wickedness and perversity and, and evil in the world. God knows everything. For thousands of years, God has seen every vile and unholy thought. He has heard every vile and wicked word, every hurtful word. He sees every vile and evil deed. Every sin, every injustice, every unkindness, every bullying, every mistreatment, every abuse. He sees it all. And we read one terrible news story and we feel sick to our stomachs. But God, who is perfectly holy, thousands of years of wickedness of vile sins, both public and secret, of billions upon billions of human beings. God sees that whole huge cesspool, that mountainous, disgusting pile of wickedness. He sees it in all of its details. And yet, he has not destroyed the world. You know, people complain about that. Well, how can a good God let bad things happen? Why is God letting this carry on? And the scripture says, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? We say, Lord, what are you doing? Why do you let the evil continue in this world? So many bad things. And God says, well, look in the mirror. How many bad things have you contributed? How many cruel words have you spoken? How much hate have you poured into this creation of mine? How much selfishness? How much have you damaged? How many relationships have you broken? And you want me to just destroy it in a moment? You're asking for your own destruction. So man, sinful man, wretched sinful man, sits in judgment over God and says, well, how can a good God allow a world full of bad things to continue? Well, this is what the Scripture says. Turn with me to 2 Peter 3, verse 9, and we'll read 3, verse 9 through to 15. 2 Peter 3, verse 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, 
waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord. Not as a sign that he winks at sin. Not as a sign that he's just, whatever, the world's full of evil, I'm glad I'm going to run on. But count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. So if God is patient with this world, how much more is he patient with his own people? How many times, as we read through the scriptures, how many times over the centuries his people stray from the way? They're rebellious. We the people of God have been unfaithful so many times, so many ways. You read the Old Testament, you get sick of it. You think, what are you doing? There they go again. But that's us. If we were living at that time, we would have been going right along. And we see God constantly extending patience. The long-suffering love of God. And we have to understand, brothers and sisters, that this is not the patience and the love of Santa Claus, where he kind of, with a nod and a wink, he pretends he's not seeing the bad stuff. He just kind of sweeps it under the carpet. But this is a patient love which comes together with an perfect and infinite justice. God is patient. In his patient love, he gives room for repentance. But there is a deadline. He does judge the sinner. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. He's slow to anger. He gives time for repentance, but that time comes to an end. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. And implied in that is that if he does not turn, there is judgment, there is death, there is hell, to pay. And knowing that, let's go back to Exodus chapter 6, where God is revealing himself to Moses. And I'm going to read a little further now. We, we read, uh, ex, sorry, Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. So Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. And I'm going to keep reading on to verse 7 now. So here God is revealing who he is to, to Moses. And you see how his love and his judgment come together. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord of God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Okay, verse 7, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Love and judgment in God do not cancel each other out. He is perfectly love. He is perfectly just. And so the love and patience of God is not at the expense of his righteous judgment. This is important for us to learn and relearn because 
So many people want to speak about love. Someone's living in sin? Well, let's love them. Which means let's sweep that under the carpet. Let's just look the other way. Don't mention the censor of the awkward subject. Let's just say positive things. Who wants to come to church on Sundays and hear about sin? Let's hear about love and joy and victory and forget the sin. And so a weak, confused Christianity turns the deep and the precious and the transforming love of God into tolerance of sin, which is just simply swept under the carpet to fester and fester and get worse and worse. The Bible teaches us that the infinite, the patient, the long-suffering love of God comes hand in hand with grace and with judgment. He is slow to anger for repentance. But if there is no repentance, his righteous anger will destroy sin and those who love it and those who don't want to let it go. Now think about what this means for you. If God was not love, if God was not patient, if God was not slow to anger, he would have destroyed this sinful world a long, long time ago. He would not have held back his righteous judgment for thousands of years to bring about the birth of the Savior. Now imagine if God had brought judgment to the world 200 years ago. Imagine if God had brought judgment to the world 100 years ago. Not one of us would exist. Not one of us would know him. Not one of us would be saved. If God came back to judge the living and the dead 100 years ago, we would be nothing. You look at the world, you say, Lord, why are you letting the world continue this way? And God says, because I love you. Like, figure it out. Because I love you. Because I have loved you with an eternal love before the foundation of the world, before history began. I love you. That's why I'm waiting. I waited till you were born. I waited till you grew up. I waited till you heard the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I waited until my spirit worked in your heart a response to my love. That's why I'm waiting. Because I love you. And when you sin, God doesn't erupt in anger. And his judgment doesn't come crashing down on you right away. And I've mentioned this before in sermons, sharing a little bit of my weakness as a father. I, I sometimes think if, I, if God would treat me, if God would be so strict with me and respond to me with such irritation when I break his commands, as I treat my children, I'll be dead. We know how to demand things from others, but we fail to see so often how God is so gracious and patient with us. He is patient. He's slow to anger. Why? Because he has already poured out all his infinite, his righteous judgment upon your sins, and he has poured it out not on you, but on his own beloved son. And so this, this patient Love of God, this slow to anger love of God is not cheap love, but it is love which comes at the greatest cost imaginable. The blood of God, the death of the Son of God. Now, Matthew 18, 23 talks about a, a servant that owed a huge amount to the king, and the king said, pay up. And, and the servant in Matthew 18, 26, he cries out for mercy, and he says, 
Be patient. And that's the same word. Be patient. He wasn't asking the king to cancel the debt. He was just saying, please give me more time to pay before judgment comes. But the king doesn't give him more time. The king doesn't postpone the deadline. The king doesn't move the day when the debt must be settled. But instead he says, I forgive you. I cancel the debt. It's gone. Now this forgiveness comes at a great cost. It comes at the cost of blood and suffering and tears, torture and the terrible death of the Son of God. And because of the agony of Jesus and the curse upon the cross, God can be patient with me in my sins and you in your sins and gently lead us to repentance. And what is the lesson for us? Well, the lesson is this. God is saying, look, this is who I am. And if I live in you and change you to be like me, this is the way you are. Be who you are. God expects us to act in the same way, with the same long-suffering, the same slow-to-anger, patient, divine love of God. And when we know his love toward us, we can't go off and choke our fellow servant and say, hey, you owe me five bucks, pay it up now, I'll throw you in jail. We can't do that. Not if we know what he has done for us. If we know what God has done for us, then who am I to demand satisfaction? Who am I to erupt in anger when I am offended or wronged? Love is patient. Love is slow to anger. Love is so committed to the well-being of the other that it is willing to pay the highest price to change even an enemy into a friend. Love is quick to forgive and slow to judge. Love is not the closed hand and the clenched fist, but it is the open hand. Love gives. It does not demand. It doesn't say, I'm going to make you pay to exact vengeance, but it says, I will pay the cost to achieve reconciliation. Now, perhaps you're getting worried here. You look at the text and We've got verses 4 through to 7, and I'm still on love is patient. And I did that on purpose. There are four verses here. It is a description of love. My intention was to preach through all of these verses, but we just dealt with one word today. God's love is infinitely great. It is deep. It is profound. If all the oceans were ink, if the sky was a scroll and every man a scribe, it would not be enough to write the love of God. If God's love is so great, how can we be expected to know and to show such love? How can God demand it of us? Well, brothers and sisters, like everything in grace, it is a gift. You love the Lord Jesus he comes to live in you, and you live in him, and the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ lives in your heart, and you are a spiritual man, a spiritual woman, a spiritual child. And the Bible says the love of God has been poured into your heart. That is the first fruit of the Spirit of Jesus in your life. It's this infinite, deep love of God. It just pours into you. It fills you. 
changes you. It overflows from you. Without it, even the greatest signs and wonders are just nothing. Without it, even the greatest knowledge of biblical truth and reformed doctrine is useless. But where this love is present and active in the life of the most humble servant of God, the Spirit of Almighty God is present in power. Amen.